Hi, everyone. This is Ann Doherty, and you're listening to another episode of Current, uh, Alum's podcast. Um, Current's going to start coming to you every other week, so every two weeks, um, alternating between our webinar content so that we can bring you a broader range of industry conversations while also continuing with much of our COVID-19 specific um, communications and content. Um, so on today's episode, we're taking a little bit of a different direction than some of the conversations we've been having in the past few weeks. I think we all deserve a bit of a break. Um, we're going to be talking about the intersection of mobility, public transportation, culture, and climate as we look back on the ways that people have been moving around since you know, many of us are working from home and not occupying spaces and how that has changed from the previous days when we were able to move around a little more freely. Uh, as you know, the coronavirus has, for better or worse, really redefined how we're thinking about our cities and the relationships between our homes, our cars, you know, our businesses, and any number of um, normal aspects of uh, daily life that have changed dramatically. Um, and we're really starting to rethink how we live and the ways that we um, feel safe moving around space. So with that, we are going to have a conversation with uh, Dr. Liz Kelly, a Loom's Technical Director of Qualitative Research, who is also a cultural anthropologist, um, for those of you that don't know, and also Amanda Moss, who is a, a senior research analyst with the Loom and also has a lot of experience in urban planning and um, you know, spatial analyses. So welcome both to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, Anne. <laughs> Thanks for having us. It's awesome to have you guys. Uh, all right, I'm going to go ahead and jump in. So let's start with a question for both of you. Uh, in cities like Oakland and San Francisco, we're starting to see so-called slow streets where city residents have more space to walk, bike, and run. And you're even seeing some reclaiming of streets happening in cities like Seattle and other areas of the Northwest. What are you guys seeing in your cities? And what are the implications of this trend, do you think, when we, as we're starting to consider how we occupy urban or even suburban spaces? So, um, Amanda, why don't we start with you? Um, well, I think it's very exciting to hear about these slow streets getting implemented in different cities. And, uh, you know, it reminded me of something we have in Tucson called Cyclovia that happens twice a year where they shut down about a mile route and it's essentially just letting people experience what streets feel like to be whatever mode you want to you know travel on it's not motorized and um so you know that's been a trend that's going on and so it's really great to see that uh, it happening in like a broader more permanent scale um and you know living in downtown tucson you know i haven't i still see cars but they seem far fewer and biking around has been maybe more relaxed a bit just because of the volume of traffic has been um, less. Um, definitely seeing a lot more folks on the street, which is um, nice to see other friendly faces. How about you, Liz? What, are you, what have you seen in your area? So I live in the Virginia suburbs of DC. And so in DC, there's been a lot of discussion and advocacy around this and the mayor closed several streets and parkways, but not to the same extent as in like Oakland or New York or in other cities globally. Um, in my neighborhood, there's been no official closures, but I definitely see more people out on the streets walking, um, biking and just occupying space differently because there's fewer cars on the road. 
Um, I also wonder about, you know, a couple of weeks ago, or there's been a release of some maps around how much people were moving based on cell phone data. And I'll say this weekend, I met up with some friends for a socially distant uh, walk and I drove to their neighborhood, which is close to my office, um, which is to say a distance that I used to travel pretty frequently. Um, and I was struck by just how far it felt. It was six, it's like six or seven miles, which isn't a tremendous distance, but um, I just was reflecting on my own recalibration of what's near and what's far, having spent the last eight weeks only um, sort of within this like maybe three mile radius near to my house that's very bikeable or walkable. Um, so I wonder, and I have no, it's so just speculation about how that will impact uh, people as we begin to return to whatever normal looks like. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective that it's like re reorganized your sense of space in terms of what's reasonably accessible, you know, what, what is proximate, which is a really cool idea. You know, um, when you think about this next normal, um, we're starting to see new norms emerge. Um, but just as you mentioned, Liz, like how we're engaging with space, what feels close, what feels far. Um, we could consider also that public transit and other um, formats of um, moving ourselves around in space are really changing dramatically. Um, I'm curious to know as you guys are thinking about this uh, around your, around personal space and access to buses and um, how people are navigating, what you see as a cultural anthropologist, Liz, on what what we can expect to shift? What are the new norms going to be in terms of how we're managing that and managing this, you know, new sense of space under COVID-19? Well, I think it's, that's a really big question. And it's mm -hmm. been fascinating and strange to watch as, and participate in this sort of collective navigation of a new cultural norm. I mean, from an anthropological perspective, culture is always in flux and new modes of being are negotiated frequently, but this feels bigger um, than, than sort of other norms that I've maybe been a part of uh, changing. Um, and so where I live, there's been definitely a shift in the last few weeks from being just like a mixed bag of people where wearing masks versus not, not so much in stores where it's been required, but in like on a walking path. Um, and now a larger percentage of people are wearing masks and there's a lot more shaming towards those who aren't. Um, and so I think it's interesting to see these things change um, and how behaviors are changing. But I think masks are really interesting to think about as they're a sign of civic responsibility almost more than um, effective you know some of the data is that it's maybe not that effective as a barrier to infection but it's effective what it does is signal one's participation in a public or in a community um, and so it's sort of culturally significant even if it's not necessarily medically as significant um, although not an epidemiologist nor a doctor so i wanna, like, <laughs> don't want to make any claims about but i think the the point is that wearing a mask in this case has become deeply cultural um, and the other thing I think about as a cultural anthropologist is around how we navigate space with our bodies and this, um, the space between 
people, like this guidance to stand six feet apart suggests that we're immobile. And in fact, people are often moving in there with the ways they communicate, that you lean in, you gesture, the sort of bounds of your body and how you communicate and navigate space is also deeply cultural. And, um, and so what we're asking people when we say, make sure that you stand at least six feet apart from each other is potentially to navigate space and to have a, a new barometer for thinking about the distance that you place your body in um, that wasn't necessarily uh, a barometer that I personally used. I think other people, there's other cultures and, and moments when people are deeply aware of personal space in a different way, but I think this is um, sort of, there's now public health guidance around this in a way that there perhaps wasn't in the US. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, um, even I'm just reflecting back on you know, how one navigates space in subways, for example, or in buses and pre-COVID-19, um, the sort of frustrations and <laughs> aggressions that would sort of play out in people not adhering to norms or not seating mm -hmm. space or um, providing space, for example. And there are lots of like memes and other things that we could sort of speak to around that, but we're in a completely new moment now where, um, you know, like man spreading isn't your worst concern and you're sitting next to somebody on the subway, right? There's something else right. that we're thinking about things really differently. Um, Amanda, as an urban planner, um, how are you reading this landscape um, where we have this new norm of um, having to manage this distance and how do you see that impacting the way we think about public transportation at this moment? I think it's, you know, I think there, it's kind of, I've been trying to like and kind of in preparation for this catch up to some of the transportation trends that's been happening but and I kind of landed that it's always seems to be like this thing that we're reaching for and and planners are kind of like you see something like I remember going back back in school there was like this you know oh this excitement of public transit because of the recession like trends and transportation shifting and shifting more towards public transit and um, away from cars because millennials can't afford cars and all these different things and then it kind of seemed to pivot and um, while some of those maintained I think that you know it, it felt like we're still not quite sure what to expect or what to plan for uh, which is a problem and um, but I think that there's I don't know. I'm, I'm excited that there are people are getting to go outside and they're experiencing new ways to habit their space and what that might feel like for them. And I, I think I, you know, I'm hopeful that that sticks, but I'm also a little bit concerned that we're going to have this backslide and that, you know, some of the things that we've talked about as far, you know, as potentially like shifting back to cars because there's, you know, some concern about the safety of public, public transit because of the close quarters or, um, you know, it, or reinforcing stigmas around public transportation, especially buses, buses as being like kind of dirty, you know, quote unquote, like is ways to move through space. I, I'm worried that this might reinforce some of that. Um, and, but um, hopefully that people are you know, able to Kind of latch on to and hold on to these moments where they're getting to walk and bike and be in spaces and then see like public transportation as an extension of what they're able to do on their on their own um and i but i do think like while there could be this backslide <clears throat> in progress that public transit has made i you know 
found this New York Times article that pointed out that tra public transportation is not going to go away because it's, it's an essential service because it meets so many people's needs. It fills this gap um, and it connects people and it provides accessibility um, over great distances for folks that don't have a car, don't have access to a car, don't want a car. Um, and you know, and like, in, especially in this moment, we're seeing that trans public transportation is, is an essential service and it's a moving folks that are deemed essential for their jobs. And so I think that it's not something that I'm concerned is going to go away. I just think that it, probably the big question is how are we going to support it and make it a more of a sustainable system rather than relying on sales tax dollars that are, you know, highly like fluctuate a lot and just trying to create a more sustainable funding source and um, design of these systems because we need them and we rely on them, especially in these moments. That's such a um, great point that I hadn't really thought through until you named it, which is essentially thinking about how we fund it and then funding it through the tax base or bond measures that may or may not be um, manageable, doable in moments of recession, for example, or periods so we are in recession. You know, um, you also, as you were talking, Amanda, kind of evoked some imagery that I was thinking about um, recently in the Detroit area, and I think this is in the New York Times most recently, where um, they're talking about rates of transmission as sort of being a function of public transportation and how that may or may not be stigmatizing um, as you're dealing with populations that are dependent on busing systems and also are um, dependent on um, work that is required essential service, like who are essential service workers and you know, how are they getting to their jobs and what are the impacts then of, of requiring that they work and then also that they're dependent on, say, public transportation to, to get to those jobs. Um, and, you know, as we think about, um, for example, uh, bus riders, according to a 2017 American Public Transit Transportation Association study, bus riders um, in the U.S., the majority, nearly half of them, roughly 46% have incomes of less than $25,000. Those are household incomes. That's well below the, the U.S. Um, average. Um, and if you think about also public transportation, um, we're seeing that continue to decline, except in communities where it is, in effect, in some ways, an essential service that people have to get to work. Um, we're, you're hearing more encouragement to get folks to walk to work or to ride their bikes to work, uh, both for their own physical health, but also to reduce exposure because you're not actually in tight quarters. You know, the question we have around this is essentially, are we assuming a certain level of privilege that families in these metro areas that may at, the, at this moment be dependent on busing, for example, are able to effectively and reasonably bike or walk those distances to work. And I wanna start with um, Liz on that question because we just heard from Amanda and then we'll move it to Amanda. Thanks. Um, yes, I think flat out, there's no question that a discussion of walkability and bikeability um, assumes a certain privilege. Um, I think about that in my community. So one of the things about the DC area is that the gentrification of the city has, um, led to a dramatic increase in the cost of living in DC in in that urban center and the urban core where um, there's a lot of people who are drawn to that because it's 
walkable and bikeable and all of the offers all the amenities of city living. But what that's meant is that uh, people have been pushed out of those neighborhoods and into the suburbs that are much less expensive, but often are not really walkable or bikeable. And in these communities, people may be relying on buses to get to work and to get groceries and to get food. Um, and so setting aside questions of like even getting to work um, and who can work from home versus who, um, who like who can't and who has to go in to continue to um, to do their job, um, but also even things like accessing groceries, accessing food, where do you shop? Can, is there a store you can get to on a bike or through walking, or do you need to take a bus or a car? Um, and if you don't have a car, then take a bus. So I think there's definitely privilege embedded in a conversation about biking and walking and using urban and suburban space differently in the midst of this pandemic. Um, I would hopefully think that this is an opportunity for us to address that, but I think I think we're seeing just inequality of all kinds being exacerbated in this pandemic. Um, I read something Kimberly Crenshaw wrote recently about um, the ways in which the pandemic has impacted um, Black and African American communities and just exacerbating. And she begins with this um, thinking back to Katrina and the impact of Katrina and sort of pointing out that racism and racial structural racism and disparities of wealth and access um, that are layered onto class and race in the U.S. are um, are just exacerbated. And if we look to Katrina as this earlier moment of a failure to um, to respond to crisis, a governmental failure to respond to crisis in a way that was equitable, um, we're seeing a similar echoes of that in terms of the impact on the Black and African American community and, and Latino communities and communities of color. And so I think um, hopefully this will be a moment of change, but I, I think one of the things she points out in that article is that a language of we're all in this together actually maybe erases some of that um, mm -hmm. and, and avoids or enables an avoidance of the ways in which we are all in this together, but not all of us are experiencing this in the same way. Yeah. That's such an interesting comment because you can see very quickly how spaces themselves are vulnerabilities and that they have, they bring with it all of these um, histories of structural inequalities and um, various things. If you think about who was impacted by Katrina and why just based on geography alone. And there was, and I don't know if this was Kimberly's article that you're citing, but there was a recent piece in the Times, I think it was Thursday or Friday of last week, where they looked at um, those individuals who actually stayed in the city of New York and Manhattan and those who fled Manhattan in, in the most affluent neighborhoods, you see as many as 80% of the residents having left the city to avoid mm -hmm. occupying the city during these moments of crisis. So then what is privilege in that moment? Yeah. It, the privilege, it seems, mobility. is essentially mobility and your ability to choose where you reside and when. Um, and what you get to have access to at your convenience. So um, Amanda, I'm gonna move to the next question um, for you. And I wanna just sort of draw on your perspective in Tucson. So um, for those of you who don't know Amanda well, um, you can see her uh, riding her bike all over Tucson and hauling it up many stairs into the Loom um, office in downtown when we, when we were occupying that space, hopefully we'll be back there soon. Um, but the city of Tucson has recently unveiled its um, 
complete streets policy, which is really aimed at giving special attention to those who are most vulnerable on um, the streets, essentially the people who are biking, walking, taking transit, wheelchairs, or other mobility devices. Have you seen uh, this transformation in your own navigation of the city? And where do you think more work is needed? Just, you know, just reflecting on your own, your own town. Um, well, I think I, I'm very excited about this policy. It is relatively new. I think it happened within the past year, maybe six months. So I don't ha we haven't seen a lot of transformation happen yet because, you know, new projects are, that will be affected by it are kind of in the works, they're in progress. Um, but I think it's going to help kind of my vision or where I see this going is really helping also addressing some of the privileges that, you know, that came to mind to me in that last question about also like what are people's ability levels and do they have access to safe infrastructure that makes walking and biking to work or wherever safe and comfortable and even feasible. And, you know, in Tucson we have, have where I see a lot of work needing to be done is filling gaps of uh, sidewalk. There's like pockets of streets that just have a beautiful sidewalk because there's a new construction and then all of a sudden you're on, uh, you know, a dirt path. And so I'm thinking about people um, who use different types of mobility devices to navigate space. It's switching from a sidewalk to a dirt um, to dirt is challenging. And um, so these are some of the things that this policy is aiming towards to like trying to improve access and um, really complete streets. The idea behind it is to make streets places for everyone, all modes, cars, bikes, pedestrians, folks in wheelchairs, and public transit. And so I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of hope, but there is a lot of progress that still needs to be made in Tucson. And I'm part of me really wants to see more um, activation of this policy in current plans, and kind of retroactively, like, okay, we have this plan, we're going to do this redesign of this major thoroughfare let's bring in these policies because it's more so than just saying we're going to have a bike lane and we're going to have a sidewalk on this project. It's really thinking about are we providing a prote protected and comfortable space for these other modes and because right now you could be in a car and you see in front of you on either end you have like two or three feet of space between in your lane that the other car has and then the other car next to you has another two or three feet of space and the cars feel very comfortable and that's why we see speeding and they're just blasting through spaces. Um, but like that same kind of uh, feeling needs to be provided for other modes of transportation. So that requires more intentional design and looking really specific at the site and who's using it and who might use it. And that could include, especially in Tucson, it's something as simple as providing shade along sidewalks instead of having really exposed um, sidewalks that are hot in the summer and providing protected bike lanes so that bikes feel just a little bit more protection when they're going up against the car that's going 45 miles an hour next to them or a giant bus. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of progress and improvement that needs to be made in Tucson in those ways, but, and I think the policy is going to get there. It's just very, very new. Yeah, it, it takes time for sure. Tucson is, um, for those who aren't familiar, there aren't many neighborhoods outside of the central core and some of the older neighborhoods that actually have sidewalks at all. You know, they're you very much have to build them in. Um, and that's something that obviously would have to occur at the neighborhood level almost. 
So, you know, since we're talking about navigating space within cities uh, and creating space for things like foot traffic, um, there's a recent piece in the Washington Post that looked at um, the reduction in foot traffic and, um, you know, engagement in urban cores, specifically in downtown sort of central areas and the impact that that's having on independently owned and operated businesses such as restaurants. Um, in these you know, primarily walkable neighborhoods. Um, I'm curious to know what you all think uh, about that with respect to you know, changes in transportation patterns, walkability, and the impacts of this COVID moment on um, what resources we actually have access to in our cities, like our small businesses and um, smaller organizations. And I'd like to pose that um, first to Liz, and then Amanda will have you take it on. Thanks, that's a great question, Anne, and something I've been thinking about um, sort of speculatively. This piece you mentioned in the Washington Post talks about um, the price of commercial real estate rents and how, um, through, you know, how difficult that's been for uh, small business owners to pay when um, when they're not getting the revenue that they normally do. And so this piece talked about um, at an interview with the owner of Miss Pixie's, this beloved sort of furniture store on 14th Street, um, very eclectic and not corporate. And one of the things that she talked about um, is as, as businesses like hers may, um, may be impacted here, are we going to see an increasing corporatization of urban spaces and that's something I think um, it will be interesting to see who can survive and what whether independent stores survive or if we start to see um, that the the spaces and places that can navigate through um, the the closures that we're seeing now um, end up being largely chain businesses um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see and my hope is that of course the independent local businesses and the communities that support them will um, will exist and, and pop up in new and different ways, even if um, what the current landscape that we have looks different. Hopefully there'll be spaces for that, but you know, it's, it's a complicated question. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's a interesting consideration, you know, when we think about uh, privilege and how, what it affords and doesn't afford uh, you know, in terms of your average uh, resident, now thinking about it in the form of what it affords or does not afford to businesses and what that might do in terms of changing the nature of our cities. Amanda, I love your perspective on this. I know you have a slightly different vantage point or, or maybe a, an alternative view based on your own experiences of how you've changed your consumption patterns in Tucson. And I'd be curious to hear about that a bit and mm -hmm. some of your thoughts. Yeah, so um, in our household, we so we're in downtown Tucson. Um, we're bike walk within two, five to 10 minutes of most things. And, um, you know, part of our thing of like, how can we help during this time is to support as many local businesses that is can. And, you know, so we have a routine of going and getting pasta from a new fresh pasta place or they have takeout, you just put your order in, grab it. So it's our Friday afternoon activity. And then in other ways, we've some of the markets here that have been 
you know, restaurant kind of small market type things have expanded what they offer. And so, and then, you know, other places have transformed to selling more to restaurants, like a local meat place that's sold mostly to restaurants. Um, now kind of turn more residential customer facing and providing their meat that's locally sourced, you know, uh, to the broader community. And so our transformation is like, let's get, try to do some takeout, you know, we're not, we're not going out, you know, on the weekend to enjoy some music, live music or anything like we can spend, spend those dollars by doing takeout and supporting different businesses in that way. And then also transforming where we're buying our groceries and so that has been going to these markets that have transformed themselves into providing more takeout options that, and also partnering with other, you know, uh, Pivot Produce is partnering with like Five Five Points in Tucson, you know, for those folks who are familiar, uh, you know, to provide more locally sourced products. And, you know, we've been able, I think, to shift about 90% of our groceries. Well, I'm under no illusion that I think there are plenty of businesses still in the downtown region that, are hurting and may close and are, you know, having a really rough time of it. I've been very encouraged to see how busy these places maintain to be and transforming to the takeout platform and how people have really jumped in and saying, I'm still going to buy from these places. And um, so I think that there is like a glimmer of hope and it might depend on the city and the space and the areas that uh, this, these, these impacts to local business and how they manifest. Um, but, you know, and I think if like as you guys like as, as, as inevitably folks or businesses might close, I think that there's also kind of a responsibility that shifts towards the community and the local government to in our recovery from this period to prioritize and support local owners moving in and starting businesses. Amanda, one of the things that is underlying your statement is essentially uh, this move towards needing communities to sort of vote with their dollars to decide how they want um, their communities to be um, managed and what they want them to look like in terms of their businesses. And it reminds me a bit of um, some of the themes that came through in our public health discussion a few podcasts back, where um, we started to think about resiliency as being a local project or a highly localized project and that mm. resiliency is created and it's maintained through local leadership, local investment, more tightly organized communities. And I feel like what you said really, really hits on that. Um, so I want to leave with a, one last question. That's a big one as well, admittedly, but um, we have a, you know, in this COVID moment, again, for those who are not working in essential services, um, you know, a real shift in where people are working and how they're working. So we have a number of workers like ourselves, um, those in, um, who are doing more knowledge work or information services to work out of our homes rather than um, driving or commuting in and out of work. How do you see um, this shift impacting our future? Um, will telecommuting be the new norm? How might that both impact our cities, but also potentially impact our environment as well? I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. So Liz, again, I'll start with you and then we'll allow Amanda to close us out. Great, I think that's a great question. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking about uh, in the context of 
we were talking about public transportation, um, I know that that's been a, a part of the conversation. So WMATA, the DC Transit Agency, recently released a plan about re recovery, and they noted that in order to maintain social distancing, the Metro bus capacity would be reduced from about 40 people on a bus to 10, and a rail car, which can normally hold up to 120 people, would be capped at 20 to 25 to maintain that six feet of social distance. And the road infrastructure in the area definitely couldn't accommodate the, that gap um, between, you know, 120 people on a car to down to 20. So as we think about what a return to work looks like, I do imagine a request that people continue to work from home as much as possible to relieve the pressure on the infrastructure so that as we've said that, that infrastructure is available to essential workers and people who do need to get to work who can't do their work from home. So um, I think that as we think about this recovery, and it, it is a longer process as we're starting to think through what we how we navigate those um, those new changes. Um, so that's just one instance of how I think the working from home will shift. Um, I also think that there are industries that were um, where it's I think there's industries where it's we're seeing that it's really not possible to work from home like schools like I, I think we may Schools may, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the fall, but I think pretty robustly there seems to be a consensus that education should happen in person. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, uh, I, I think, though, that there's some government agencies, government work, which has for a long time been definitely need to be in the office and people are finding, well, actually, maybe we can do this or telework is possible in different ways. So I um, I think it'll be interesting to see as things return to a normal um, what when people go back to offices and when they don't and when it becomes more something more of a conversation that people work out with their employers um, depending on their family or personal situation or preferences even introverts versus extroverts that kind of thing um, some people like being in an office for that um, chance to connect with other people and um, some people find that more draining and can do better work without that. So I, I think there's a lot of ways in which this may, um, there may be shifts moving out of this now that we've basically proven that a lot of industries can work remotely with some, you know, level of work product. <laughs> Great. Um, Amanda, do you have any thoughts on this question? Anything you'd like to contribute? I think that this is a great idea, especially helping us transition um, out of you know, being at home for so long and really trying to make public transit safe for folks that you know need to use it and um, you know let's keep people home so we can just kind of reduce this potential risk. Um, but I don't, as a long-term policy, it gives me pause and that. You know, it sounds really nice on the front end, um, but I think it's kind of, uh, it seems like a band-aid solution to me, uh, and rather than actually getting at the core issues of why we have greenhouse gas, or like what kind of reductions we need to, what kind of changes we need to make to um, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions at the local level. And, you know, because I'm just like imagining that this will just facilitate folks moving to homes that are even further away from, you know, their places of work and places they like to 
eat and spend time and you know so just really kind of perpetuating sprawl and you know that we've seen how that can really drain community resources and also environmental resources and so it's just going to kind of I can just see this being as a mechanism because I'm, I'm like why don't I want to live in this beautiful area you know 30 minutes outside of town it's because I don't have to commute commute 30 minutes each way and so that's like a barrier for me that it's being created so I'm kind of concerned that if that, that commuting barrier is removed how will this kind of balloon out and just actually zap some more of our resources uh, and together is this like an unintended consequence of it and then culturally I'm also kind of concerned what the impacts of that could be like I really enjoy kind of being able to pop down from the Loom office in downtown Tucson to go grab a coffee or some lunch and have those interactions with people um, in these local shops and I think that that feels a lot very important to me and you know I'm just concerned that this would create some kind of like rift of folks that work at home and don't interact with people that are providing you know work in the service industry or you know providing other services that you know we often take for granted anyways but then this would just kind of I think exaggerate that yeah yeah exactly. I think that's a such an excellent point and I think that that question of um I know that this is a topic for another time but what we are seeing lower emissions but like whether that's sustainable and what that means and some of the rhetoric around those I think is really questionable so I think maybe for a future podcast, <laughs> but this question of what the impacts, what, what is the, the climate impact of COVID um, is just, it doesn't seem as straightforward as just, oh, look, we're cutting down emissions right now. Yeah, and it's an interesting question, again, when you think about what industries uh, have declined moving through space using things like... Um, fossil fuels, for example, and who, who exactly was on those flights and what industries were they supporting and um, what it then means to now work from home is provides a really interesting insight into both the cause and sort of the solution to, to some of these challenges. Well, Liz, Amanda, it's been a real pleasure having you both on the podcast today. I'm excited to take on some of these topics in the future. Um, consider yourselves volunteered for that conversation. <laughs> um, but really, thank you for talking through this with us. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Of course, you're so welcome. Uh, well, this episode of Current was created by a Looms production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you guys next time.